Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Walker Dival, thank you very much for coming on my podcast, Horizon Search. Very much looking forward to talking to you. Big fan of your book and the work that you're doing, as are many others. You are a best-selling author. You are an investor, a mentor, a coach, and so many more things. If you don't mind, could you please briefly introduce yourself to our audience? David, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out. We joked that I might do the interview in an English accent, so maybe I'll introduce myself not with an English accent, but okay. so born in St. Louis, left for about 10 years, came back to get my MBA, tried to start a business a few times, sort of figured out I'm a really bad entrepreneur. And back in 2004, sort of got this crazy idea of, should I go out and buy existing companies, right, rather than starting from scratch? And it was through my frustration of lack of materials that I then went and sort of figured out how to buy a business. And then I ended up buying seven over the course of about a decade, spent about four years writing buy then build to try to share with entrepreneurs, hey, acquisition is equally as important as innovation. Like you guys are sort of missing it. Pay attention over here too. So along the way, I've sort of committed more and more of my time into the private capital markets. So I help people sell their businesses as a broker. I own a handful of companies myself. I'm a very active investor in the private capital markets, and we started an acquisition accelerator called Acquisition Lab. Okay. Thank you for that comprehensive background. I'm sure we'll drill into each of those buckets at different points throughout our conversation. But generally, it seems like you've created quite the synergy, and each one would probably feed into the success of the other. That's, yeah, that's exactly. People like the hardest question I, I get asked is like, so what do you do? I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so it's, it's basically three legs of the same stool. Right. Yeah. Okay. People sell, educating buyers, and then buying and operating myself. Right. Okay. And selling. Right. I mean, ultimately, you buy, grow, and then sell your business. So, so I'll just say he's a stool salesman. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, one of my companies, I sell macerating toilets. Okay. So your stool is <laughs> actually a double entendre there. <laughs> okay. And so is your last name, I discovered. So I'd like to go maybe back to your experience with Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. Some of these peer groups have caught my attention recently, having recently graduated from an MBA, and I'm looking at, okay, I need mentors and peer groups and this and that. And there's some criteria you have to meet before you're admitted or qualified to apply to some of these peer groups. But I was curious, A, I guess, what made you decide on Entrepreneurs Organization? B, what is the differentiator there? How did it have an impact on your life? And C, why did you leave? Entrepreneurs Organization was introduced to me. So there was about four of us in my MBA class that went on and acquired businesses. It's, it started with two or three, and then another one sort of came in a bit later. But the, the truth was, was the, the other two that had done what I was doing, sort of joined EO, and then came to me and said, listen, this is like the best thing I've ever done, right? Okay. Like in terms of being a business owner. I was with EO for about four and a half years, actually. I was, I was a member. And what I would tell you is it was during the time that I owned my first company and it was absolutely invaluable. Mm. Even at Acquisition Lab, we, we toy around a lot with, should we start a operating mastermind? Because we already have all these people that then go through and buy companies. And you know, shouldn't we be helping them do that? And I sort of I always default to we can, but I feel like we're the best in the world at helping people sort of navigate their first acquisition or growing through acquisition. And there's so many resources to just to learn how to operate a business, you know, EOS and traction, join the entrepreneurs organization. These are always the things that I recommend. 
And I think that EO is such a great place because it allows for business owners to come together and sort of share privately and confidentially the real challenges that they're facing in their business and and in their home life, right? Just the the different things. And in a way that you can't necessarily share with other people, Mm. right? And let me give you an example. I have to run payroll in two days and I don't have enough money in my account. What should I do? I just closed a million dollar deal this month. Okay. So like a terrible and a great. Okay. You can go around and be like, I just closed a million dollar deal because the only thing that everyone hears is like, oh, you just made a million dollars in your pocket. No, that's not what happened. Right. Right. It's, it's successes, it's challenges, it's all the rest of it in a cohort of people that are that are t- one of the things that I actually really got out of EO, David, is that Vern Harnish started it. And so there was a lot of Vern Harnish stuff. And and the thing was was that it was along that journey that I realized that if you have $1 million in revenue, you're able to apply and hopefully get accepted to EO. And I was like, well, why is that? And it was because only 4% of companies ever exceed a million dollars in revenue. Mm. And so if you read Buy Then Build, actually point that out on the first page, because it was through EO and Burns work that I realized that acquiring a business with $1 million in revenue, like as an MBA student, that is so small. I like I was ignoring it. It was just like, what well, this is ridiculously small. Like, why would we pay attention? It's such a small hurdle for being such an exceptional accomplishment. And so as as I started to put those dots together, I was like, wait, this is a lot more attainable than I than I actually realized. And then how did you come about the decision to move on to do other things? Oh, why did I leave you? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I guess you know what happened was I ended up selling my first company. And then I ran off and did a startup, (laughs) which that one didn't work. And it was actually at that point where I realized, okay, wait a minute. The startup that I did after I stole my first company is actually the the one that I talk about when I opened Buy Then Build. It's that one. Because this was like, I am going to build a business from scratch and I'm going to succeed. I'm going to go to one of the top 10 accelerators in the country. I'm going to recruit a Microsoft executive to lead it as CEO, we're going to oversubscribe the capital raise and like everything still went wrong, right? It's just like, ah, but I was determined to get it done. So I was starting a business from scratch. So I no longer hit the revenue requirement. Number two, it was also that like nine month experience that led me to realize like, wait a minute, every time I start a company, I fail. And it's not necessarily because I'm terrible or I'm incompetent. It's just that like I'm flying into an asteroid field with the Millennium Falcon saying things like, don't tell me the odds, and I'm, I'm just getting clipped by the asteroid. It's punishment for not understanding statistics, right? Like okay. starting a business, right? Yeah. So I said to myself, okay, but I bought this printing company. I ran it for seven years. I sold it. And like I had a seven-figure exit. Why am I... Like I already figured out how to buy companies. So it was from 2013 through 2016 that I went out and bought another six companies during that three-year period, right? And started writing Buy Then Build and all the rest of it. So... There was just too much. I was too in the, what do I say? I was too much in the business to allow myself to sort of step out on a monthly basis and kind of have like a board meeting experience, which is what EO really is. Now, okay. I will also say being on the board and, and all the other stuff, I started to realize a couple of things. There's sort of three profiles in EO. Now, I've never said this out loud. I don't know if this is legitimate or EO would, you know, number one. Some people come in and then they stay for a year and then they leave. And they're like, this just isn't right for me. Number two, there's this big 
Exodus, about right about five years. Okay. And number three, then you sort of get the, I'll just call them the, the lifers, right? The career EO people that sort of like go on and join regional and whatever, you know, or just enjoy the community. I enjoy the community. What I would tell you is I went to every single event for three years. Wow. I ran the accelerator events on the board. You know, I did, I did, I went to every single thing, went to every single networking event, everything. And by the time I got to the fourth year, everything was sort of repeating. Yeah, okay. I already did this. Yeah, I already did this. So then I just sort of stayed for my forum. And then as you know, one member left and then two members, I sort of like took took the opportunity to be like, this isn't working for me now either because of the changes in my life. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I'm yeah. aspiring to apply myself someday. And I was just wondering what the commitment is. Is it like the mafia where you never leave? Like uh, Godfather Part 2, they pull you back in or are you no, free to no, go after it, four or five years? It was such a powerful experience that I took a lot from it when we formed the Acquisition Lab as well, right? And so just a lot of the the confidentiality that is required to make real progress in EO and in the forum is the same thing that we implemented in Acquisition Lab because we're talking about deals. And so you know, if we're in a small group yeah. and you're talking to me about a deal, you're thinking about buying and someone else in the room realizes, oh my God, I think I know what that company is. And I think my cousin works there. We have a big problem. And like in EO, they really drill down into like that level of confidentiality and discussing like pillow talk and all the rest of it because people yeah. outside can connect dots and figure things out that are really hypersensitive and mm. can't really can't be treated that way. So that was one of the the, the anchors and values that we did in order to, to build. The okay. Lab. Well, you beat me to the transition there. Uh, I was going to ask, like, what did you take away and then apply to Acquisition Lab? Because it seems ah. like you have seven uh -huh. years of uh, experience in the interim and you're a wealth of experience, I'm sure, writing the book, et cetera. So how is Acquisition Lab influenced by entrepreneurs organization? Would you still recommend that the people in the Acquisition Lab pursue like a peer group? Or are they getting enough of that magic in Acquisition Lab? I was just curious, how would you describe that? Yeah, so EO is for business owners, right? You have to have, own a business that is generating at least a million in revenue, right? And by the way, the other reason people leave is they'll sort of grow their company to, to like north of 10 million. And then EO tends to be a little bit smaller, right? But like they, I see. on that, they sort of exit out that way. Okay. So to answer your question, I guess I would say that number one, cohort-based, right? We build, we basically build forums through the cohort. Mm. Number two, small groups and confidentiality, right? And what I would say is the whole thing is really kind of funny in that if I get on social media these days, I'm targeted very directly with a bunch of people trying to have me join their program so they can teach me how to buy a business. When we started the acquisition lab, we were the first person out there, right? And why am I bringing this up? Oh, because I asked myself, okay, if there was a, an MBA, like an Ivy League level MBA class that was all about how you actually do this, hmm. but then we also integrated sort of like a Y Combinator, we're actually doing this kind of in a course and mash them together, what would this sort of like world-class education look like? And I ended up hiring a curriculum designer and working together with a couple other people where we created all of the core curriculum, right? And I thought that was awesome. But the other thing from EO is you have to apply. You're not just in, right? I'm also an investor in a coding academy in LA and New York. And it's it's got the single best results of any other coding boot camp. They would kill me for calling it a boot camp, but it's, okay. it's an coding intensive. And uh, they've got the best results of anyone, anyone else out there. And it was just a slow build for the first two years. 
all of the growth was was restricted. And we, we've done the same thing at the lab. It's hard to get into. It's actually hard to get into. So there's a lot of other... Let me say it like this. I've joined masterminds and courses and all the rest of it where you, they just put you in some kind of Facebook group with like 100 other people that aren't actually going to be able to execute. I hate that experience. And so it was really important to me that we only bring people in that are actually constructive team players that are also able to actually execute on, on what it is they're trying to do. As a result, over the last 18 months, I think we've acquired our members have acquired over 100 businesses, about 200 million in transaction value. And it's just really, really satisfying to see those kind of results. I'm sure. Congratulations. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was your perspective on the changing landscape of ETA. We have AIs everywhere. Is it helping out with deal flow? There's no shortage of capital, it seems, and looking to invest in companies. There seems to be stiffer competition in terms of the traditional searchers and searchers of every permutation coming around the world even. Now we have accelerators in Novastone Capital. We have accelerators in Europe, Asia. It's, it's exciting. But is there a ceiling for how much growth can happen and keep this kind of culture or will it change? I was just curious, like, what are you seeing and what, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. My brain is going two or three different directions at the same time. Let me, let okay. me try to land can it. explore them all. First of all, I would say that if 1% of all MBAs, okay, go out and try to start a search fund like this year, okay, we would have more search funds than private equity firms. Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry I don't have my slides in front of me. I don't actually remember the numbers, but I did okay. the math. I was like, wow, what an interesting thought. Yeah, I right? never thought of that. So like the pace in which search funds can be spooled up is so lightweight and easy and kind of solo effort for the most part that like if they actually got, you know, financing and a traditional search fund method, they would outrank private equity. Here's the other thing. There are more companies underneath what traditional private equity is wanting to acquire, like 8% of the companies in the United States anyway, are smaller than what private equity would even consider. Okay. And so the thing is, is that the opportunity for search funds and for small business acquisition is so much larger, both by volume and opportunity, okay, than even the entire private capital markets as they exist today. Okay. It's just, is this only US based? I'm just even talking US. Yeah. Wow. But, but okay. it's all, it's, well, I mean, think about it. Like if 4% companies achieve a 1 million in revenue and it's like 0.5% achieve like 5 million in revenue, or is it 10, right? You know, what are you going to call it? Like 3.5% of all companies between 1 and 10 million in revenue, right? And all the private equity is in the, in the upper like 0.5, basically, mm. right? So it's like you've got, you've got multiples of more opportunity. The other thing is that I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, I know this comes up, but you've got baby boomers own more companies than any other generation in history. Right. And like, it's like 48% of the entire U S economy needs to change hands by the end of the decade as these people retire. Okay. Mm -hmm. I know because out there in the trenches trying to buy companies, like I know that there's other buyers and it seems crowded and all the rest of it. Okay. The truth is, it's just math. Like, there's not enough buyers. There's not enough buyers for the sheer volume of companies that needs to transition. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that it feels crowded, but the truth is, is that, like, I think that, I think that ETA needs to evolve. Okay. 
and it has been obviously if you as you've highlighted but the thing is is like when search funds came out okay it's like okay here is this sort of box of you know it's got to have recurring revenue it's going to be service based it's going to be like just all these things and it's like well geez that's the perfect company that's absolutely no risk like first of all you're never going to find that because the broker's going to buy it right you know or whoever right and then it's sort of evolved to like tech enabled and all this you know technology started pouring in as the as the investors got bigger which is great the thing is, is that like when you are competing against other buyers on a single asset, it's because first time buyers really struggle with their leap of faith. And investors of, of buyers really want to de-risk it because they're not the ones in there actually managing, right? But the truth is, is that ETA from the sort of, you know, collegiate world and search funds from the collegiate world. Even when someone says to me, like, oh, I'm a self-funded searcher, I know that they came to ETA from this sort of institutional introduction, okay? okay? The truth is, is that search funds are such a minority. M- MBA students looking for businesses are such a minority. This has been an entrepreneur's playground the whole time. It's sort of like saying people that start businesses only come out of MBA programs. Like, it's so false, right? That, that like, it's, it's, it's not defining, right? And so it's a sample size that is that is strong, but also remains the minority. Okay. Okay. Other entrepreneurs, especially ones that have run businesses before, are actually able to identify opportunity that isn't obvious. People coming out of MBA programs wanting to buy businesses and the people that are investing in them are trying to they're they're trying to de-risk the entire acquisition process. And that mm-hmm. and those types of acquisitions are gonna have multiple buyers, right? But you are walking down the corridor of entrepreneurship and are able to see how things go together and are actually and have experience managing a business and all the rest of it. You can see opportunities that other people coming out of institutions can't see. And it's those type of things that don't look at all like this. And it looks like risk, but it's actually not. It's the opportunity and it's the magic, right? So you match an entrepreneur with those special opportunities that don't look like the others and there's no other buyers there. That's the trick. So if, if search funds can somehow figure out how to embrace things that look like more risk, then I think that it'll get a lot more expansive. Okay. Thank you for sharing that and elaborating a little bit. It definitely expanded my understanding with that. One thing I wanted to ask, though, is at least with the traditional model, one of the value adds, one of the strengths it has is the board. And a, a recent MBA graduate in particular has the benefit of having this expertise and the networks and funding, et cetera, that can come from a well-aligned board. Is there enough talent to go around to be the glue for, for all of these companies that need to change hands? In your estimation, I mean, that's interesting. I let me just say that you know, search funds technically were around, like right, like in '04 when I was when I was graduating. But like I remember hearing about them in like '05, right? And search funds in like 2005 was sort of like a a private party happening on, at Cambridge, and and of course at, at Stanford, right? You got Irv Grosbeck who went out over to Stanford, and right. So these two sort of areas. And I was trying to imagine when I first heard about it, walking around St. Louis telling people like, hey, I'm going to like go search for a business. Would you invest in me so I can buy a business? And the concept was so laughable at that time. And so to see that it's it's really expanded today is so great. But I, I think that 
if I were graduating with an MBA today, uh-huh. I can imagine no better career path than trying to start a traditional search, right? Or even even a single sponsor search, right? I mean, like like I just think that it's such a I don't want to say red carpet experience, but what you're what you're underscoring is that you know you're sort of building in the board with your investors and then going out and tackling a specific you know entity. Right. Um, I think that your question is: Are there enough people? Of course, yeah. but they don't look like what you're describing. You know, I think that the first company I bought, I didn't start a search fund, right? I went out and I got a personally guaranteed loan and I bought a book burning company. And ultimately, the first thing I did was form a board of directors, right? And I was an MBA student. I didn't know what the F I was doing. And I'd had some experience, but not really. And so I paid each of my board members $1,000. And I just okay. went out to St. Louis community and I hired the best, recruited the best people I could that were, you know, relevant and successful and much older than me, right? So anyone can do that. And coupling that with EO, which you already brought up, was right. was really exactly what I did. Okay. I built a board of directors. I think I had three or four members. I paid them each $1,000 a quarter. We had a morning meeting, held me accountable. I did slideshows and all the rest of it, reported, shared my financials, had my accounting manager come in and like, do you know, whatever. And then I took everyone to lunch and we just kind of talked strategy. That's how I did it. And I think that anyone can go out in their community and recruit. I mean, if you pay me a thousand dollars for, I mean, I can't right now, but you know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> so let me be very clear. I mean, more than that. But the point is, it's like, if you go to you know, a silver haired, successful business owner and say, listen, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars every quarter for hanging out with me for two to three hours. And then there's an optional lunch after where I'm going to buy you lunch. Right. And I just want you to hang out with me and help me. A hundred percent of them are going to say yes, and that's all. That's all I did, David. So I, I, I just got to think that every one of these. And by the way, when a search, when someone first jump, starts a search fund, the first thing they say is, "Okay, I'm going to buy a company like in Boston," and then they spend their first six months looking in Boston, right? But by the time they're in month twenty three, they're like, "No, no, rural Ohio sounds great. Like I just found this great one." <laughs> so being geography expands like crazy, and so when you right. end up in that rural, you know, in that rural area, right? I mean, there's going to be successful people around you, and you just you need to meet them, and you need to pull them in, and you need to get them on your board. So having some humility, having some discipline, being open to learning, having some grit sounded like you had all of that, and you kind of learned by doing. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's like the, it, it's funny, we we're talking in the lab last night and it's like the, you know, someone came up to me recently at a cocktail party and, you know, I was in Austin and she said, um, so when you, when you buy a company, like, do you, do you like run all the like academic forecasts and like do the, the net present value and, and all this kind of stuff? And I was like, no, I pretty much look at it. And then I figure out if I want it or not. And I'm usually under LOI in about 48 hours. The last, I think, three or four companies I bought, I found out about it and was under LOI within three days. Here's the thing I can't speed up, David, which is I can't find when that deal is going to hit my desk. Right. But when my timing is right and when that deal shows up and it's it's got the bones that I'm looking for right then, I can make a decision very quickly. And I don't have to sit around and worry about things like... Okay, when I go in the first day, is everyone just going to quit? It's like I've done this so many times now. I know no one's going to quit. I already know that. Unless they find out before closing. If they find out before closing, everyone starts polishing up their resume. If they show up and I'm like, hey, I'm Walker. 
I love this company. You guys are invaluable. Here's where we're going to go. Everyone's like, okay, well, I don't know that I like this dude very much, but like, I'm, I'm supposed to come to work tomorrow. So I'll just keep coming to work. I'll give it a few months and see if I like the guy. You're not giving them a reason to quit on day one. That's right. No. And then by the way, all they really want to hear is your pay is not changing. Mm. Your benefits are not changing. Your vacation not changing. That's it. Like that's what they really want. That's what they need right away. They need to hear that. And then they're like, okay. And then they know some level of change is coming. They have a new owner, right? Mm-hmm. But but like, you know, as much as you can chill everyone out on on that. And then of course at some point in the next 90 days, every single person in the company is going to ask me for a raise. I already know how this goes. <laughs> I already know how it goes. And then usually one or two people will end up leaving, you know, pretty soon. But okay. here's the point. I don't get hung up in all that stuff now because I already know. Right. You do it enough. So when I see a deal, I'm not sitting around trying to, the magic isn't in the academics. I'm not like okay. forecasting a bunch of stuff. Because here's the deal. If a company grows 10% every single year for the four years before we buy it, what happens the year after? It goes down? Probably. But here's the deal. We don't know. We have no idea. It's more like I need to get in there and I need to start operating. And it's all about building the business, right? Okay. It's like fixing the things that you can, focusing on the people and like, elevating the core competencies and the things that have been ignored. So a lot of baby boomers have, and I buy, I buy both companies, right? Like I, I bought e-com businesses that have been around for, you know, seven years. I buy baby boomer businesses and all the rest of it. But the thing with boomers is that a lot of them, they don't have any debt. They've already put all their kids through college. They're driving their Lexus, making X hundreds of thousands a year, whatever it is. Like they're not they're not into taking risk. And so there's a lot of things that have usually been ignored. And yes, I'm speaking about capital expenditures. But the point is, is like, you know, there's a lot of just keeping it scrappy, kind of entrepreneurial stuff that you can do in these companies, because a lot of them have been, I'm not gonna say asleep at the wheel. Okay, I just mean, maybe not full court press. Okay, makes sense. What I was alluding to from what I saw initially, I'm pretty new to this still, but it seems like invariably there's like a little dip right after you acquire as like things settle and then you go up for hopefully continued success. Have you seen that? or Have you ever seen it where that's avoidable? I mean, I haven't seen data behind that, but I would tell you from my own experience that it's almost happened every single time. Okay, so that's another thing, just cost of doing business. Well, and I also think it has to do with I'm not blaming sellers. I don't think sellers are malicious or anything else. It's just that I think that when people decide to sell their business, it's usually lifestyle. It's usually all these other things. And then, you know, we're all familiar with the S curve, right? It's sort of like you want to sell when it's up. But I will tell you the number one mistake that sellers make, they wait too long and they wait for it to start leveling out, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of times they can say like, oh, I just had this like external, unusual little bump. So this actually would be a good time for me to sell right now. And I think that a lot of that, you know, you can't control the external markets when those little external benefits happen and they say to themselves, well, and it's a good year. That's usually when they sell. And so it's like you take over. It probably needs a little capital expenditures. You know, there's a lot of new going on. That's a good point. And so there was probably a little bit of helium that came in year before. And again, it's not malicious. It's not whatever. And here's the thing. Here, let me be very clear about this. A lot of us get really hung up on like, I'm needing to pay 3.8 times for this deal. I really need it. Like because of all these things and like the helium in the last year and all this other stuff, like really the value is, you know, 3.4 times and I'm going to, I'm going to pay 3.4 times. 
Well, and it's like, okay, you're talking about less than six months of earnings is the difference. And we get so hung up that like all it takes is one other buyer to come in and be like, I don't care. I'll pay 3.9 or four times. I don't care. Right. And it's gone. So it's like, we're paying like two and a half to four and a half times for these businesses earnings. It's so low that like, I'm, I'm sorry, but like, I think that a lot of, a lot of searchers just get really, really hung up in like, what is the academic value of this business? It has a lot less to do with what you actually pay for it. Okay. And what you're able to do with it after you close. If it's the right company, it's not worth getting hung up on the initial like 0.25% difference between your desired acquisition cost and the seller's expectation. The the risk is in the entrepreneur, usually not business. Yeah. Interestingly put. Well, thank you very much for that. I'd like to pivot to our closing topic of you being an author. Many people, myself included, have dreams of someday writing a book. You've actually done it. It's done okay. It's done better than okay. Was it 12 months consecutively on Amazon's best-selling list? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Wall Street Journal. It was Wall Street Journal bestseller, USA Today bestseller. I think it was like almost 36 consecutive months uh, as an Amazon bestseller. And then I stopped counting. 100,000 copies sold. Super thrilled. Like just, I'm just thrilled. It's great. Yeah, well, you probably heard it, but it's bears repeating. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And I wonder what the, the odds are there if it's like your first book is going to be this smashing success. I was curious, what made you decide, you know, I know enough that I am going to write a book or that I want to write a book. And probably sure. more importantly, okay. how do you know it's done? Yep. So, okay. Number one, I got the idea for Buy Then Build in 2004. Because I was like, where is the, like, I'm graduating with an MBA and like, I read all these books and there's all this stuff around like all of these different business classes, let's call it. And there's like nothing at all, at all, like about this topic. And so, Mm -hmm. and so I was like, well, this is crazy. But the, the thing is, is like, I realized two things. One, I could run around and just like interview people that had done it and sort of like put it all together into a chapter book and kind of like get it out there. And be like, cool, I wrote a book in my late 20s. And I wrote a book. Cool, fine, right? That book never would have done very well. It would have looked great on a resume. What I decided was, no, if I'm actually going to do that, then I need to be able to put myself on the list of people that are allowed to write it. Okay. And what I did was I I basically spent 10 years doing it before I released the book, right? And so that was very deliberate, okay? And it was it got to the point where it was about 2015, 2016, where it was just burning inside me so loudly because I was I run in groups of entrepreneurs and I was getting introduced as like, this is Walker, he buys and sells companies. And I was like, I mean, look, that sounds dope, but like, that's not what I do. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm in the trenches just like you guys. Like hmm. you just don't understand what I'm doing. Right. And so it, it just, it agitated me enough that I had to do it. It just was too much. Okay. It had been too long without anyone doing it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. But if I do it, it's got to be the single best book. Like it has to be the authoritative book on this subject period. Okay. And that was what I set out to do. And I started with sort of a Jim Collins approach. I love Jim Collins. So I was like, I'm going to go interview all these people. I'm going to like, bring in all this data. It's not just the Walker Dival story, right? And I did. I think I did 50 or more interviews of people that had done it. And what I realized was that everyone's story was so drastically different that I was like, there are no best practices. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, all right, what am I going to do? I need to come up with like frameworks, right? And like, 
it's probably like the second or third chapter. There's the AE matrix with the four quadrants. Uh-huh. Any MBA student has to have a book with four quadrants, right? But but the point is, it was on that whiteboard right there for about a year. And I couldn't get the quadrants right because there was no framework, right? And then ultimately, when I got it, it was so clear and simple and easy. It's like, oh, growth and values is so simple, right? But the point is, is it was just a lot of like, a lot of trying to pull it together. And I wanted to self-publish because, I, you know, I, my first company was a book printing company and my customers were publishers. So I sort of saw in there. Yeah. I learned how to launch a book, right? And I knew, I knew like, okay, it's all in the launch. Like if this book's going to be successful and have the impact I hope it has, I have to have a successful launch. So I put my back into it. Now, when did I know it was done? Number one, spend six figures on editors, design, all the rest of it. Okay. Once you have, in my case, $125,000 invested in your book, you better get it done. Right. (laughs) And all I can say is, even with like two months to go, I think I completely rewrote two chapters all over from scratch. Okay. And so every single chapter on its own needed to be complete and buttoned up and sort of like both strategic and tactical. And it needed to take my thinking to the next level. And so I would push myself to try to, it sounds so dumb, but I, I would just try to like, I would try to elevate the topic of each and every chapter. And once I, once I felt like I actually got that done, that's when, I, that's when I sort of knew it was done. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. And thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It was a real pleasure. And I look forward to seeing your continued success. David, pleasure's mine. Thank you so much for having me out today. All right. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Thank you.